This is Monocle on Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manese. On today's show, we visit the Holzweiler Clothing Store in Copenhagen and head to Singapore to explore an architectural conservation laboratory set in a historic townhouse. We'll also speak to the Managing Director of Unifor, Carlo Moltani, about the importance of the office. Plus, in California, we look at the influence Nordic nations had on American design, thanks to an exhibition at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. All that coming up on Monocle on Design. Hello and welcome to the show. We begin today in Copenhagen, where the Norwegian clothing label Holzweiler has ventured further afield with a new outpost in the Danish capital. Monocle's Gabriella Delasanti went along and sent us this report. When you step inside the Copenhagen store of fashion house Holzweiler, you suddenly feel removed from the hustle of nearby streets. The Oslo-based brand is expanding its presence outside its home country, opening its first retail space outside of Norway. Holzweiler's Copenhagen stores conveys a sense of tranquility. Its walls are curved and clad with panels of oak, and floor-to-ceiling windows let in plenty of natural light. At the center of the space, an imposing light grey clay sculpture by Norwegian artist Ingeborg Griesing dominates the room. I travelled to Oslo to learn more about the thinking behind the store's design and to understand the brand's ambitions beyond Norway. Here I met up with the brand's co-founder, Susanne Holzweiler, at the company's headquarters just outside of Oslo. It's a large and airy office that overlooks the Oslo fjords and is filled with samples of upcoming collections. I asked her the significance of physical retail space for their brand, which started back in 2014 in a small shop not too far from here. I think retail uh, for us has from day one been super important since that's also the way we actually just launched our brand. Although we have always done this mix of retail and wholesale, so both are super important. But in the retail environment, you can really invite people into your universe, which is very important for us. Like every collection in Holzweiler is designed with a story behind. Uh, we're a family business. There's like a lot of emotions that we really go into like the whole lifestyle part of our brand. And then it's it's just crucial, I think, to have like these spaces where people can really get the feeling of the whole brand and not only, you know, the, the items in the collection. The Copenhagen space was designed in collaboration with architecture firm Snöhetta. The two started collaborating a while back when Holzweiler opened one of their first stores in the Norwegian capital. She sits down with me and shares how designing retail is about balancing form and material, while giving life to a narrative that reflects that of the brand. It's sort of parallel research between the form and the materials, and then the gesture applied onto those materials. And weaved together with that narrative that we write together with a brand, it sort of begins to make sense and fall into place. Just as the brand is creating a narrative from one collection to another, so does the space um, or the spaces that we create. So the overarching theme that is tying all those spaces together is 
the Norwegian identity and the exploration of that identity in all the shapes and forms that we can. We look at nature, first of all, and the context of where the store will be. So it's about anchoring that Norwegian identity to the place. For the Copenhagen space, the architects worked with materials such as oak wood that can be found in abundance in Norwegian nature. And they also collaborated with a Norwegian sculptor. I think um, it's very important for us to bring our Norwegian heritage with us for every city outside of Norway that we open in. We're very proud of being a Norwegian and coming from this very special small country up north with lots of nature that we are just naturally inspired by. And uh, we will definitely take that with us. Manon explains how the process of designing retail spaces at Snöhetta is not set in stone. Quite the contrary, in fact. With the ever-changing role of bricks-and-mortar retail, from mere transactional venues to spaces that engage with the senses, the flexibility of designing each space independently is extremely important for her and her team. It's definitely an ongoing discussion in the office because we do not want to have a clear recipe. We don't want to freeze what a retail should be, is or or will be in the future. So every time we sort of want to start from scratch, reinvent the wheel every time to sort of be sure it's going to be fresh and it's going to be very much linked to the brand for which we're designing. For Monocle in Copenhagen and Oslo, I'm Gabriele Delisante. The Monocle Companion 50 Essays for a Brighter Future is our indispensable new book that's packed with fresh ideas for fixing the world. This new paperback includes insightful essays on everything from the way we work to urbanism, utopia and how to be a good country. Plus, plenty of nudges about how to help ourselves, each other and the planet. Don't delay. Buy your copy today. That's the Monocle Companion. 50 Essays for a Brighter Future. Available now at monocle.com shop. In a historic townhouse in Singapore, the country's national university has just opened its first ever architectural conservation laboratory, called ArcLab. Here, researchers and students from the university's architecture department will spend countless hours over the coming years restoring the building. The aim? To make it Singapore's first ever carbon-neutral retrofit. Once complete, it will serve as a brilliant example of how to retain a city's character while also making old buildings competitive with contemporary counterparts in terms of sustainability. In the meantime, the construction site will be open to the public as a living laboratory to showcase conservation techniques and sustainable technology. Dr Nikhil Joshi, who's leading the project, gave Monocle's Naomi Zhu Elegant a tour of the historic house. Last year, we started a new master's program in architecture conservation in, in our department. And we thought that this is a unique opportunity as a, as a classroom in the city or a laboratory in the city. My students have already started working here. So while I am repairing the house, they're also learning about the skills and the, uh, together as a, as a worker. First thing first they want is a toilet. <laughs> so the first thing we made is this toilet. 
and we have already started uh, installing uh, some equipments and, and to help us collect the data. We are working on two aspects of conservation here. One aspect of conservation is the materials. Uh, when we talk about lime and, and brick repairs and, and clay roof tiles and blah, blah, blah. Now, since we are, we are using technology as well to help us understand the, the building and the surroundings as well. So we have installed these three equipments, one in here, one in the middle in the air well and one outside, which is uh, helping us to collect the airflow, temperature, humidity, radiation and the pollution. We entered the house through the long back entrance, past the outdoor spiral staircase and walked through the kitchen. As we made our way into the main reception room, it began to rain, and water cascaded through the open air well and onto the floor. It was the jungle front and back, and in, 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 a, in a really bad condition. We have, done, we have done a minimalistic cleaning, just to make it you know, more welcoming and people can come in and, and exhibition. What you see here is, uh, is the air well. Again, very important feature of, of this sort of houses. It's called air well because it, uh, it's, a, it's a well which, which gets the air and the natural light and ventilation. Very important for Feng Shui as well because of the water coming right in the house in the middle. This, this sort of water is, is uh, I'm, again, I'm not a Chinese expert, but I was told that uh, water is money. So the, the, it's like money coming to your house. This is another weather station right here, which is again collecting data for the light ventilation and all that kind of stuff. That's a donation plaque which, which talks about donor and, and, and everything. Some of the original clay tiles I got from the roof have stamped made in France. As you can see, some of these tiles, uh, they are different tiles, and they also came from different areas. Uh, some are from Belgium, some are from Japan. These uh, beautiful blue ones are from Japan. They have the features, fertility, pomegranate, peach, long health, something to do with hand of Buddha, happiness, and, and there's another peach here. After the rain subsided, Nikhil and I sat down in the reception room to discuss the history of the house and the future of the project. We got the house uh, through a generous donation by Portobella family and we just got the house on, uh, on 15th of April this year. So it's, it's, uh, it's been, what, a few months. The idea is to transform this house into a, a living laboratory, which means that this will be a laboratory for things to, to test, to do hands-on workshops, research, anything related to uh, historic townhouses of Singapore and the region. We are not converting it to a typical museum, as you see in, in many parts of the world. Uh, you have all the furniture setting and, and everything, and you, you enter and you feel like you are in an 18th century house or a 19th century house. So this will be the basic furniture here, just to sit and, and, and a few tables and things like that. Uh, in the next three to four years, this house will be transformed into a construction site, a repair site, a conservation site and students as well as the contractors we are, we are planning to train uh, in, in historic conservation and also general public can enter here and uh, see what we are doing, uh, get a deeper understanding of you know, what is heritage conservation, why it is done. This will be our classroom in the city where we will educate not just our students but the general public and the other professionals as well about heritage conservation. And even during the time that it's going to be construction site, you said that it will be open to the public, is that right? Yes, exactly. So again, this will not be a typical project where you know, everything will be scaffolded and, and covered and, and people are not allowed in because it's a health and safety issues. Of course, we have to pay higher insurances and everything. But the plan is when the public is allowed, of course, they will not be allowed when it is dangerous and when we are doing some other stuff which is not conducive to open. But in most of the cases, when we are doing basic cleaning, basic plastering and things like that, we, we would like to open it to the general public as well so that they can come they can see for sure, but, but they can also participate because when you do, you learn more. 
so instead of just standing as a as an observer from a distance and and seeing the contractor doing the job you can actually see that how easy or difficult it is to do then you have a better understanding and appreciation for you know why it is takes so time you know why it is so expensive because it's not as easy as as it looks from a distance most of the historic buildings when uh, they are repaired it's mostly to do with materials you you use the right materials to repair such as uh, the traditional building materials uh, lime plaster bricks and clay uh, roof tiles and so on and so forth these are the, the typical elements you know the the tiles and the and the walls and the and the plaster but in our case uh, we also want to use technology to help us uh, to in this repair and also to to make this building more conducive for the contemporary use we don't want to just repair the building and then put all the artificial lighting and and air conditioning and things like that because the world has learned actually that you know that's not good we need to reduce our the greenhouse emissions and for that we want to use technology to help us how we can we can do that and still make the building comfortable for the current usage and the and the users we are using a lot of technology uh, for for this sort of thing and uh, we are collecting data now that how the building is behaving now and what we can do to improve its uh, climate resilience we would like to make the building a first net zero retrofit of of the country and possibly of the region Yeah, it's pretty striking. So we're sitting in the main room right now and the air well brings in so much light. Both sides of the house are open and there's a breeze coming through. Like I don't see any reason why you would need air con or even a fan like you were saying. Yes. That's how these buildings were built, you know, the reason that they are they are so close to the the sea and you know it's it's quite unfortunate that our our planning system doesn't consider this. Of course, Singapore is a is a small country. We can't stop building buildings. We need to also think that, you know, how these buildings behave. the the context is is very very important the surroundings the immediate surroundings are very important so if something happens to the immediate surroundings like the high rises and and things like that all what you have just mentioned the natural light and the ventilation will be stopped and the users of these buildings are forced to switch on the lights and to switch on the aircon we need to be mindful that when we have this sort of conservation area what we we are, we are sitting here now is is preserved in totality we should look at in holistically rather than just building by building Dr. Nikhil Yoshi there in conversation with Monocle's Naomi Zhu Elegant. Start the year right with Global Insights and a subscription to Monocle. You'll receive 10 issues and 4 special annuals, plus access to our archive and digital editions. More than that, a subscription will keep you informed, entertained, and ahead of the game on everything from global affairs to hospitality and design. Sign up now and get 15% off any annual subscription. Visit monocle.com forward slash subscribe and enter the code RADIO23. For office furniture brands, it might seem like there would be a temptation to double down on solutions for working in domestic environments. But despite what the work from homers and workplace doomsayers might say, brands like Italy's Unifor are seeing increasing demand for the traditional office, with many businesses investing in wares and works for company headquarters and commercial spaces. For more on the return to and the importance of the office in 2023, I caught up with Carlo Moltani. He's the managing director of Unifor, and I spoke to him at the Orgatech Office Furniture Trade Fair. 
my humble opinion, like the future of the office, like uh, even after this uh, period when we were forced not to be in the office, I think that companies, the people itself, the employees, and the, everyone wants to and needs to stay together to share ideas and to work better. But of course, the environment of the where you work has to change, and uh, companies needs to say to their own employees that, that maybe they need to built and to see the office uh, more as an environment like where you can have a quality time you can share quality time to bring good ideas but they have to bring back people to these new spaces maybe we will not see hopefully like 5,000 workstation all together all in a row but maybe you will see more cooperative spaces more of a quality spaces less people because anyway this uh, time where people will we work home, it will stay, but it's fine until the, the office and the company will allow people to, to build a good environment. So mm. we have, say, more quality, maybe more custom to being able to give to employees a, a good environment to work and think together. Wait, so, so what do you mean by more custom? Like everything built specifically, yeah, specifically for that company? Yeah, like I, yeah um, I think it's less, less standard, like because before we were seeing like... Uh, lots of old batteries of uh, were stationed in a row that we can go in there working and then go home. Now it's a it's a mix. You wanna go to the office because it gives you the tool to work together in a different ways. I'm seeing that like our clients they used they used to have uh, these uh, layouts with lots of station all the same now they're asking us for making building something different, something dedicated to them, maybe smaller. Uh, with a better quality and uh, maybe the custom for them, dedicated to them, where people can cooperate uh, better. It kind of also makes me think of, I feel like, you know, you've got lots of timber here, you've got aluminium that looks quite raw, you've got glass, you've got these really natural materials that we normally associate with, like, homes and domestic spaces. Do you think there's a shift away? That's, That's a bit of a shift. Of course, office is always related to the kind of business you do. Of course, law firms, maybe, they will, I mean, depends on that. But of course, to feel a bit more, it's changed. It's not that you need to feel home, but maybe our taste change a bit in general in the world. And to feel more cooperative, you need to feel a bit of a wood. Carlo Moltene, Managing Director of Unifor there. It's over to Los Angeles after the break. How long do you think it would take you to travel the world to hear from the most perceptive and relevant speakers on the global news agenda? To mix that up with a trip to visit the business people benchmarking best practice in media, retail and hospitality. And to make time too, to delve into a rich mix of great design stories and rich cultural discoveries. Well, you can do all of this in just 60 minutes each week by tuning in to The Curator, a whistle-stop tour of the best of the last seven days on Monocle 24. Subscribe and download the show now or listen every weekend on Monocle 24. Finally on today's show, it's over to California's biggest metropolis, where an exhibition at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, also known as LACMA, explores just how much American design owes to the Nordic nations. The exhibition, called Scandinavian Design and the United States, is a vast survey of furniture, textiles, graphics and children's toys. Monocle's US editor, Chris Lord, visited LACMA to speak to the show's curator, 
Bobby Tigerman. One of the motivating reasons for doing the show was to um, offer a new narrative of American modern design history. The prevailing narrative being the influence of largely German and Central European uh, architects and designers who fled Europe in the 1930s as a result of the, the Nazis, came to the United States and became the head of the major architecture and design schools. Royer, Mies van der Rohe, Joseph Albers. But what that narrative neglects is the very real, longer, and more pervasive influence of Scandinavia um, in the United States. And so we wanted to do an exhibition that addressed that longer story. And we stood now right in front of this extraordinary desk here, which is which is a relatively early piece from the early 50s. Talk me through, what, what are we looking at here? Yes, so this is a desk by the Swedish architect and designer Greta Magnusson Grossman. She was born in Sweden, trained as an architect and designer, uh, immigrated to Los Angeles in 1940. And so she was a California designer um, at that point. Um, but it was also really the spark of the idea for this show. I was thinking about Greta and her, her experience both in Sweden and the United States and thinking if there was a bigger story that one might be able to tell. I think that many of the ideas we associate with Scandinavian design also um, describe American design. Um, and in the, for this desk, for example, it's made of walnut um, as well as micarta, which was an early plastic. And I think it really embodies sort of her combination of cultures. It was not made by hand. It was made in a factory, batch production. And so I think she was sort of bringing together the old and the new um, in this piece. To what extent was this high design at this point? How within reach was this of your average American consumer as more of these Scandinavian designers start to make their way to the US and to work here? Before World War II, I think the associations are more with luxury. Um, you have firms like uh, George Jensen and Orifor who are exporting very uh, fine and expensive goods to the United States. After World War II, it, it begins to change and you have a, more of a democratization um, of these kinds of objects. You have a big growth in Danish furniture and Finnish furniture and lighting, and they become more accessible to the middle class. What happens, I guess, over the course of the 20th century is you have a large influx of people from the Nordic nations, especially into the Midwest of the United States. And I think that's, that creates an interesting sort of dynamic, doesn't it, where they take root in places like Grand Rapids, Michigan, and also create some of the very famous institutions up there. 2.3 million Scandinavians come to the United States in the late 19th and early 20th century. This is a huge influx, and many of them are architects, designers, and craftspeople. They come with their skills, and they um, establish their own businesses. Um, one of the most notable immigrants was the Finnish architect Eliel Saarinen, who was invited to not only design the campus, but design the pedagogy of the Cranbrook Academy of Art, which is outside Detroit. And it is still a very thriving art school today. Cranbrook was really a center of American design. Many of the most famous names in American design passed through Cranbrook. Um, and so you can see how with Eliel Sarenin bringing his expertise and also inviting other instructors um, in ceramics, in textiles, in industrial design to teach at Cranbrook, you really have this influence upon generations of American designers. The leading lights of American mid-century design are all here. Charles and Ray Eames especially as well as foundational pieces in the Herman Miller brand, 
And what you take from this show is a sense that what we call American design today actually owes so much to Scandinavia and how its values and aesthetics travelled across the Atlantic. To tell that story, the show doesn't rely on screens. Instead, there are big birch columns like trees in the space, abundant colour and tactile arrangements laid out in playful ways, at one point reminiscent of a barge packed with Lego, chairs and a wild-haired troll. It's all care of LA-based architect Barbara Bester, who came up with the exhibition's look and feel. This whole room, in a way, is a kind of room about market and capitalism and sort of Scandinavia exporting itself and how it did it through colour, through fabric, through these, you know, these beautiful art objects. But I like that idea that it's this kind of barge of commerce, you know, and, and kind of, and, and that's where we were playing with that in terms of how we made it. So it's a Viking longship on its way to America with all these products and Marimekko sails, if you like. Yes, exactly. For a lot of people, maybe don't know the intricacies and nuances of Scandinavian design. They imagine something that's very minimal, very quiet, very simple. But actually, you've done a completely different thing. There's colour everywhere here, red and white stripes on the walls. There's huge maximalist uh, assemblages like what we see in front of us here. Talk me through that. Was that a conscious thing to challenge this idea of what we might think a Scandinavian show of design should look like? The choice to kind of go full on with color and not be kind of wood and white simple galleries is, is in part because when you start to look at these objects they are pretty a lot of them are very exuberant into themselves and are not self-similar the idea was to create these larger narratives that then these the specific objects could be in so that had to kind of take a stronger approach to avoid it being you know you know garage sale of individual pieces there has to be like a bigger story so we were trying to get these bigger stories through color and through form Barbara Bester. It's vital to understand that Scandinavian design was marketed hard in mid-century America. It was sold as an echo of a simpler, rootsier old world at a moment when America was sprawling with suburbs and factories and mass production. By contrast, Scandinavian design, or so the marketing went, was high quality, perhaps handmade, using organic materials and infused with the breath of the artisan. I put that to the curator, Bobby Tagman. There was very strategic marketing campaigns and the designers, the manufacturers, the shops, they were all in cahoots to sell these products to Americans. And so we're standing in front of this poster by the designer Ib Antoni that says Denmark famous for fine furniture. And it shows a man sitting on what looks like a tree that's been chopped down. Um, and in his hand is a what looks like a Hans Wegner chair. And it's implying that he cut down this tree and made this chair, when of course we know that these things were made in factories. They were small factories, um, but they were factories nonetheless. They were not made by hand. In addition, the, the Danish teak that we associate with um, this furniture was native to Indonesia and Thailand. It was not native to Denmark, and so it was a product of international trade. Um, and so the associations that, that you mentioned, high quality and organic and comfortable and modern, were really sold quite effectively to Americans. And it's not all just about furniture. There's there's also cookware here, extraordinarily important in this story, isn't it? We look at these very bright, 
pieces of, of, of cookware here, two big cooking pots and a milk jug. Talk me through that. Yeah, so these are by a company called Dansk. And um, you may think that a company called Dansk it would be a Danish company, but it's not. It was founded by a Jewish couple on Long Island. Um, and they, they did go to Denmark and they found a Danish designer named Jens Kvistgaard, who designed these beautiful things. Um, but they named it Dansk because they knew that Americans had this um, appreciation and, and passion for Scandinavian things and thought it would sell their products. I wonder whether there's still the same fascination, if you like, with the Nordic nations here in the US. You know, now Americans are much better traveled than they would have been in the 1940s. They'll, they will know, they maybe have been to these Nordic nations, whether that allure almost a mystique of that part of the world still exists. Judging from the attendance at our show thus far, we've had, you know, hundreds of people every day. So I think there is still a, a, a fascination and an appreciation for Scandinavian design. That was Bobby Tigerman of LACMA talking to our US editor, Chris Lord. The exhibition, Scandinavian Design in the United States, closes on the 5th of February before moving to Milwaukee later this year. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced by Maylee Evans. She also edited the show with assistance from Steph Chungu and Tamsin Howard. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening. Listener.